Hello, this is FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the Dot Esports Podcast Network. I'm Ahmad Khan of Tom's Guide, and joining me today is Troy Stangrone of the Korea Economic Institute, a U.S.-based think tank and outreach organization. Earlier this week, Korean player Jung Ryeol Sebyeolbi Park made a comment on his Twitch stream that caught the ire of Chinese Overwatch League teams. Given that Twitch is a primarily U.S.-based audience, he mentioned that he couldn't make certain comments regarding Taiwan or Hong Kong on Chinese streaming site Douyu without getting into trouble. The controversial statement went as follows. What can you do? If you want to make money in China, you have to become their dog. This caused much outrage with more patriotic Chinese citizens and all four of the Chinese Overwatch League teams. A statement was put out saying all four teams would boycott any game Park would be involved in. The Chinese teams have since backed down from the boycott, and a move that they said was for the purpose of prioritizing sportsmanship and integrity. Today I'm joined by Troy Stingrone, the Senior Director and Fellow at the Korea Economic Institute. He oversees KEI's trade and economic-related initiatives. He's been featured in Foreign Policy, CNBC, CNN, and The New York Times. Troy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I think before we get started, it's kind of good to kind of give a primer on the background between Korean and Chinese relations, you know, the it, it's, it goes beyond just the digital battlefields of uh, League of Legends and Overwatch. The history of China and South Korea or China and the, and the Korean Peninsula overall has been fraught, to say the least. Uh, you know, before we kind of get started, uh, when a Chinese player or a Korean player makes a statement that's maybe, you know, a little bit off color, why does it cause so much, you know, outrage? Uh, all of a sudden? Well, you know, China and Korea have a long history together, dating back thousands of years. But when we look more towards now, the modern era, you know, since the end of the Second World War and the end of the Korean War, um, there's been this division on the peninsula to where, you know, China has largely backed and supported North Korea, though at the end of the Cold War, it set up formal relations with South Korea and opened up uh, to the South. Uh, but if we move forward, you know, there's still this tension because of the conflict with North Korea. So as I'm sure many of your audience probably know, the North Koreans have been developing uh, nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. Um, in order to defend itself, uh, South Korea, about five years ago, started deploying what's called the THAAD missile defense system. In essence, what this would do is it would allow South Korea to take and shoot down missiles that were coming at a higher trajectory um, for different types of missiles, you need different systems to take and uh, protect against the incoming missiles. But the difference between this system and ones that South Korea had deployed in the past is that because of the trajectory the missiles would come at, if there were to be a uh, missile coming from China, one, this would have the potential to intercept it depending on the angle it was coming at, though unlikely given where China actually bases its uh, ballistic missiles. Um, and also it would take and it would allow South Korea and by default the United States to be able to see into Chinese territory. And while the U.S. already has methods to take and view into Chinese territory for activities, this would be one perhaps slight advantage. And so China has been significantly against the deployment of the system and has been trying to pressure South Korea through economic and other means to take and remove the system from its territory. And then, you know, jumping off that, when I saw this statement that was made by Park, um, which, you know, maybe for an American audience, that might seem, you know, maybe rude, but a little innocuous if a, for example, if a British player had said something like, you know, if you want to appease, you know, the Biden administration or the Trump administration, you have to become their dog. Um, 
something like that might be dismissed, but in China, it actually caused much outrage. You know, why is there, where does this more specific outrage stem from? And, you know, is it linked to some kind of like patriotic um, sense of nationalism? Well, there is a growing sense of nationalism in China. um, And you're seeing more of what I've sort of, you know, lightly called social media wars between the two countries. Um, back in the fall, um, the band BTS, um, who's perhaps the biggest band in the world right now, took mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, received an award at the Korea Society. One of the band members uh, made what I think most people probably would consider an innocuous statement, regretting the loss of uh, Korean and American lives during the uh, Korean War. And that led to Chinese state media and um, Chinese citizens castigating BTS for not uh, taking into account the loss of Chinese lives during the Korean War. Um, In response, South Korean companies like Samsung quickly removed marketing in China um, with BTS involved. And so you've seen these things to where there's simple things like that, things you might consider an innocuous statement in ordinary contexts, or even things like there is a fermented cabbage in kimchi, or sorry, excuse me, in South Korea called kimchi, and recently, China took and in essence tried to claim that kimchi was actually a Chinese dish. And so that, <laughs> really? of course, yeah. And so that, of course, you know, upsets South Koreans who see what they view, I think, rightfully as their cultural heritage trying to be, you know, taken over by China. And so, you know, these kinds of things create tension. And, you know, we live in a world now to where, you know, citizens in one country can easily interact with citizens in another country through social media. And so you're starting to see increasingly these, you know, disputes come to head between the publics in South Korea and China. I mean, would you say some of this hypersensitivity um, is maybe egged on by uh, governments around the world? So, I mean, I think when we look at China, you know, in the case of BTS, state media was clearly sending a signal to its citizens that they should take and engage in this activity. Um, I think mm. they backed down in that case because, you know, BTS is very popular, not just in China, but around the world. And, you know, this wasn't necessarily the wisest move, I think, for them. Um, but also, you know, in a society like China's, where there is fairly strict control of media and things, you know, if the government disapproved of certain comments about one country or another, that would be something that I think that they would take and try to start curtailing in. Um, but, you know, when we see what came up in this case, um, you know, here recently that you mentioned the beginning in esports, where it deals with Hong Kong and Taiwan, these are very sensitive issues for the Chinese government. And so it's not surprising that you would see, you know, this kind of pushback immediately. You know, we even saw this in the U.S. Um, with the NBA, you know, I guess about a year, year and a half ago um, when the Houston Rockets coach, you know, made his comments about Xinjiang. So, you know, these are kind of sensitive issues that get immediate response from China. You know, along with that media response, uh, back during the NBA thing, there was actually a, a related esports incident that occurred with a uh, StarCraft player, Blitzchung, who, um, you know, was playing in Hong Kong and, you know, voiced his support for the protest movement. And of course, like, I think what was kind of disturbing for a lot of American politicians was Blizzard, the company that makes the game, you know, based in California, uh, banned Blitzchung and, you know, essentially uh, did whatever they could to appease the Chinese government. And I think, you know, a few senators and congress, congressmen and women came out and said, what are you doing? You know, you're an American company first. Um, when it comes to kind of some of that swift backlash, I think that's something I I can't really recall another government having at 
its disposal with such ferocity. I mean, can you explain kind of um, the power that China has with its ability to just make such huge, broad gestures in very in a very quick manner? Yeah. And I mean, I think I should first say, you know, I, I think you're right that you mentioned it, that um, the Houston Rockets comment was about Hong Kong as well, if I remember correctly. But, mm-hmm. you know, clearly there was this impact on the NBA. But, you know, one of the reasons China has such way and one of the reasons why businesses, be they the NBA, be they you know, Delta Airlines has gotten into trouble with China and so have other airlines is because, you know, China is now the world's second largest economy, um, you know, with almost 1.4 billion people. You know, it's a large growing consumer market, even though. The middle class in China isn't as wealthy as the middle class in a lot of other countries, but it's you know about 600 million right now, and so you know China will use that economic leverage to put pressure on companies um, when they touch these sensitive areas, be they you know Hong Kong status, Taiwan status, um, you know the more recent you know we've seen um, Nike and some other brands have had their um, logos uh, blurred on Chinese television uh, because. You know, they've come out and said that they're against, you know, the use of slave labor in um, cotton production. And there's concerns mm-hmm. in Xinjiang that, you know, there is, you know, at least, you know, perhaps close to slave labor, if not slave labor itself being, you know, used to harvest this cotton. And so what China does is they basically kind of come and tell the companies, if you want to do business here, you have to toe the line. And so that's the challenge I think companies face as they try to balance, you know, their broader global perspective. But you know, the reason you don't see that in a lot of other countries, you know, be they the United States, Europe or other places is, is that one, you know, we have more ability to take and speak out because our First Amendment rights here. Um, you know, the European Union, uh, which is a large market, you know, you have similar sort of freedoms. And so the government can't come in and basically tell a company that they can't do business just because of the company's specific stances. Mm-hmm. Now, if that company is violating the law, that's a different story. But generally speaking, you know, your position on issues or how you label certain territories are the kinds of things to where you would see, you know, economic pressure come into play. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the thing that surprised me with this incident was when it broke out, at first, a lot of people online were joking that, well, you know, the South Korean team, the Seoul Dynasty, they just got buys on all their games versus uh, these these four Chinese teams. But was kind of after uh, Sebiolbi made his apology that the teams did back down from uh, their boycott. And I, you know, given how, I guess, robust uh, Chinese, not only Chinese companies, but the Chinese government can be in these types of instances, I found that surprising. Uh, What can we make of these Chinese teams backing down kind of quickly regarding this? So, you know, I think... In this case, you know, it helped that some of the other teams were, you know, supportive. But, you know, you have a situation to where in something like this, where you have a cross-country league, mm-hmm. it's going to be hard to take and enforce this kind of situation because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the teams need to compete. It's not like, for example, you know, the NBA to go back to it, to where the games are simply being broadcast and, you know, it didn't mean you wouldn't have competition in China in their own domestic league or something. Um, you were just simply turning off the broadcast, which, if we're being honest, anybody in China who is creative and really wants to watch an NBA game could just pull up a VPN and go around the firewall and probably watch it somewhere else online. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have like this different dynamic in that it wasn't you know a product per se, but it was the competition itself. You know, so I think you know it would be a similar challenge 
if, you know, in another international sporting competition, say like uh, the World Cup, you know, would China really forfeit a game in the World Cup uh, against South Korea or another team because of something a player said? You know, ultimately, it's in their interest to play the games because it costs them more to not play. And I think mm-hmm. that's a similar situation here. Yeah, I see. I see. And I, I find it interesting that this is like the second situation that this American publisher, Blizzard, has kind of gotten itself into, uh, you know, based on what players that are playing its games uh, say. Now, a majority of the Overwatch League teams are American. Um, you know, there's four in China and uh, there, I believe, if, if I can recall correctly, like two in Europe. Um, I, I feel that all these teams have kind of talked to their players and let them know that, you know, things regarding China, regardless of how heated it may be, to kind of stay quiet on the matter. Even LeBron James during the NBA situation, he had to stay quiet, even though he's been very outspoken with domestic civil rights issues. I mean, is is, is it now coming to a point in time where maybe the Chinese teams and the Chinese government are starting to recalibrate exactly what kind of response they can and cannot do in regards to these types of international competitions. At least that's kind of the indication that I'm getting from your previous answer. Yeah, I mean, so if you move it beyond sports and look to the different ways China's tried to economically pressure other countries or companies, generally speaking, they look for areas to where there is very little downside for them. Mm -hmm. So if we look, for example, um, at the situation with Australia over this past year and its call for um, an independent investigation into the origins of uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chinese import lots of coal from uh, and iron ore and other uh, ores from Australia, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but um, they only cut off the ones that they couldn't get from other countries. The ones that they primarily needed from Australia, they maintained imports of. I see, so I see. they sort of select what they can do. In the case with uh, the THAAD uh, retaliation against South Korea, you sort of saw a similar pattern. Um, You know, they took and they went after um, the company whose land the firm or the missile defense system was deployed on because that company, Lotte, happened to own a golf course in South Korea that was used. I mean, very incidental. But, um, you know, they went after that company. Um, They went after... um, you know, Korean cultural content because they had their own desire to take and try and promote Chinese cultural content because South Korean content is very popular. Mm -hmm. But I mean, ultimately, it didn't mean that, you know, Chinese citizens wouldn't have access to TVs or something, you know, by going after that. So they seem to be very selective. And I think, you know, they're trying to learn where they basically they can maximize their gains in pressure and minimize their losses. Um, But yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So it's for, for the, with the BTS example, you know, you can only do so much because you know people who are fans of BTS are going to still get BTS no matter what. Is is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, and I think you know there was early on in the South Korean case with that to where there was actually some domestic Chinese pushback, like, wait, we're going to ban like dramas and stuff. Like, you know, this is kind of silly. <laughs> and so you know, one of the things that's a lot of people in China buy is South Korean cosmetics. And a lot of them, they mm. would travel to South Korea to buy them there. But one of the things you saw is when the Chinese sort of, they cut off basically group tours. So you could travel individually to South Korea, but they told all the companies that put together package tours to not do it anymore. Mm. And so all the people who couldn't go to South Korea anymore because they didn't want to travel on their own or whatever, for whatever reason, they just started buying a lot more cosmetics uh, in Chinese uh, stores. So see, they would just you know import it. So, you know, I think some of the stuff we see online, we probably do need to take with a grain of salt just because 
a lot of people are, you know, they're showing that they're giving the good fight, you know, uh, to the Chinese government or whatever. But then they're privately, they're going to go and they're going to listen to the BTS music or they're going to take and, you know, buy the Korean cosmetics or something. And so, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of a dual game going on here between the Chinese government and its own populace. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, with that, thank you so much for jumping on the show. No, glad to do it. And thanks for having me. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the Dot Esports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and share. Your reviews will help our show grow. For full transcripts of the show, head on over to ftwamod.com. To follow the Korea Economic Institute of America, you can find them at koreaeconist. To follow me and my work over at Tom's Guide, you can find me at Imad on Twitter. This episode was produced by Henrique Demore and Jacob Wolf. Executive producers are Kevin Morris and Thomas Tishio. With that, we'll catch you guys next week.